my name is Jeremy. I'm the pastor here, and uh, and really pumped to be jumping into Advent with y'all today. Oh man, the candles took my coffee spot. I guess I'll put my coffee back there. Okay. Um. So, the word Advent, I was not super familiar with growing up. It was one of those things that, like, you know, I. I I knew the little calendar that had the candy in it, and it had all the little windows, and every window, you know, is the advent calendar. And so all I knew was that there was every day I would be getting a little bit closer to better and better and better candy as the days went on. Uh, But it turns out advent is like a really historic Christian-y kind of thing that's been going on that goes way further back than the little calendars with the the Werther's in it or whatever. Um, Advent goes all the way back. The first mention that we can find is in 380 A.D. So way back when, this idea of Advent. Um, for the first few hundred years of Christianity, the, even the birth of Jesus was not celebrated so much. Much more the resurrection of Jesus, which was sort of the continuation of the Passover feast. That's what was celebrated. But somewhere around the time when Constantine took over Rome, Christianized the whole thing, and was pushing back against the pagan festivals of the day, one of the things that was instituted in that time was this celebration on the winter solstice, which had been a pagan holiday, and instead, on December 25th, became the celebration of Jesus' birth. Which is kind of cool, imagery-wise, because... Jesus' birth is celebrated. This is not actually when he, we don't know when his actual birthday is. But to commemorate it on December 25th, which is the darkest day of the year. Winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. And you especially feel it when you live in Nashville, Tennessee. And you're in central time zone. Even though everybody else on our latitude or longitude, whichever one that is, doesn't. Uh, Sorry, I just moved here from Eastern. I'm still getting used to it. When it gets dark at 4.30 in the afternoon, everything in my heart and soul says, come, Jesus, come. (laughs) And so, but it is like this great little picture of, and yes, on the darkest day of the year, we celebrate the light of the world coming into it. That's where this celebration came from. And so Advent, which is taken from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. So the four four weeks prior to Christmas to December 25th, we celebrate the coming, the waiting for Jesus to come. And in the same way that we just finished a series in Revelation, which ended with, and he will come again, come Lord Jesus. So now we live in a very same way as those 2,000 years ago who were waiting for the Messiah to come. We now in this time are also waiting for the Messiah to come. Uh, One thing that you can do that is very similar to this, in fact, it will look exactly like this this evening, is you can come and grab one of these Advent rings uh, and a candle set. Are we giving candles or are we not giving candles? I don't know. Nobody? Okay, great. Uh, You can buy your own candles. I'm sure you can find them uh, if we don't have them tonight. But the idea is you can also walk through this You can put this on your mantle. You can put this on your dining room table and walk along with us in this series and with the celebration of Advent anticipating the Lord's coming. Uh, There's also an Advent guide that is printed here, is in the back there that you can grab on your way out, and is also uh, online in PDF format if that's easier for you. Okay. 
with all that said, let's read. We are jumping into the Gospel of Luke. This is um, one of a few accounts of the entirety of the life and ministry of Jesus. And it begins like this. So uh, we have a reader, and I've temporarily forgotten who that reader is. That's right. Come on up, Lizzie. All right. And you get the super tiny words of my super tiny Bible. So there you go. Luke 1, 5 through 25. Or, yeah, 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for God. Thank you, Lizzie. Wonderful. So, like every gospel account, these are the words of the Lord, but also the words of a particular person. And so Luke, who had, is not an original eyewitness, but had spent much time around those who were eyewitnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He, with this physician mind that he has, now compiles all of this together. And one of the things that I love uh, that happens right in the beginning of a lot of 
uh, of biblical writing, especially in the New Testament letters, but also in this gospel, the intention of the letter is made known. And this is what he says. This is the intention. This is why Luke was writing this letter. He says he's writing to this guy named Theophilus. And he says, uh, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Isn't it interesting that he begins a letter, I hope that this will help you to have certainty. And what's the first thing that he does? He tells a story about a guy who's uncertain. It's like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that that's how you begin your ministry, that you begin by coming to those who even in their most excellent, this guy is a priest of priests. He of anyone should have no reason to doubt anything that the Lord might tell him, and he does. And that's the story that opens up the gospel to us, that opens up this account of the life and ministry of Jesus to us, and ultimately what we anticipate to be true of him as he has already met us in his first coming and will meet us when he comes again. Uh, because what this is being written into is 400 years of silence. The last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet to speak, Malachi, closes his mouth and then there are 400 years of nothing. 400 years of waiting. And in breaks this little prophecy, this little moment. And you would expect, again, for a guy of Zechariah's pedigree, that he would be totally like on board. He's quoting some of these scriptures that are quoted, he would have memorized. He would have, have very much been aware of. And yet, even as they're being quoted to him from this angel, he's like, eh, really? And again, can anybody else live in his skin? Can anybody else identify with that kind of, ah, uh, because what I see, what I feel most days is like none of this is true. The way I enter into most all of my days is like, I know God's up there sort of doing something, but I'm not really sure that he's actually going to be active in my life. That's what Advent invites us into, is an active God who is a part of your life and can change whatever he wants and is with you even when things don't change like you want them to. So here's what we're going to do. Um, the, I'm going to play off of this idea of the silence of Zechariah because when, when we get silent, it gets very difficult to press down all of the worries and anxieties of our hearts. And yet, God gives Zechariah this gift to grow his faith of quieting his mouth. There's something about us when we get worried and fearful and anxious and life isn't going like we want it to and there's been a lot of silence from the Lord more than there has been any sort of providence or movement that we have seen from him. We get very noisy inside. And that noise inside of us, that worried, anxious feeling inside is this, the noise of unbelief. And we're going to contrast the noise of unbelief with the gift of silence that the angel gives Zechariah that is a gift of faith. So the noise of unbelief and the silence of faith. 
Zechariah's backstory here, he's, like I've mentioned, he's an old priest. Uh, his wife is also from the Aaronic family, who's also a priestly family going all the way back. Uh, and so these are doubly righteous people. These are the people of the, the highest of the high pedigree. They're really old, apparently, way past childbearing years, no hope at this point that they would have children, and especially in that day, but not too dissimilar from our day, to be without children is to be a marker of shame. It is to be a marker of you're not as good, or you're not as in, or you're not as worthy as another. And so Psalm 127 says, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the, ro- of the womb is a reward. And so some, uh, especially in their day, but I would say is still very true in ours, would say, well, what did they do that they could not have children? They must have sinned. They must have done something wrong, been disobedient in some way that they would not be allowed to have children, that the Lord would not reward them with this gift. And no doubt for anyone in this room who has struggled uh, with infertility, uh, I am sure that you have felt some of those same things that this lovely couple has felt. Uh, And you also know that God sees you and knows you and has experienced that same uh, care over them that he may have over you. There's something in them and is also in us that is this culture of do good to get good. Right? It's the idea of karma or whatever you want to call it. It's the Minute Maid slogan, put good in, get good out. There's a culture in our day and in their day that the good people get the good things and the bad people get the bad things. Is that true in our day? There's an idea that my job, my family, my home, my money is something that I have done. This is, this is my doing. I have pulled myself up, I have made this, I've made a way for myself, not taking into account the inheritance that you may have just come into, the cultural background that you come into, the opportunities that you may have that are not available to all. But if you work hard enough, you can be that sports star, you can be that YouTube star, you can be anything that you want to be. And yet, Zechariah tried that. Zechariah and Elizabeth lived this righteous upon righteous life, and yet it still didn't go the way they wanted to. Who in the room is trying their hardest to live their life right, and it's still not going the way you want it to? That is Zechariah's experience. And even more so, we begin to approach God in the very same way. It is the natural move of our heart to think, if I do good, then God will bless me with good. And so when I'm a good boy, then I expect God to be good to me. Or when life isn't going the way that I want to, it must be because I'm not being good enough. And we can swing from the pride of living, I'm living a good enough life and that's why these good things are happening to me, to the shame of woe is me, I can't get anything right and that's why my life is falling apart. And maybe at a point in your life, Uh, or in many others that I know as well, this has caused many people to then buck religion and say, well, God must not be good because he's not giving me the good things that I think I need. 
that there's still so much evil and brokenness in this world. There's still so much evil and brokenness even in my home that he's not good because he's not doing the things that I want him to do, and so I'm out. But there's a second way to also deal with that, and I think that's the way that Zechariah is dealing with it in this moment. You can continue to do the forms of religion, but you can take your heart out of it. This is, as a pastor, where it gets real sticky for me. Because I'm supposed to get up here every week and deliver something, this spiritual good to you so that your faith might be filled up. But there's some weeks that I get up here and I don't feel like I have anything to give. And I imagine there's some weeks that you show up and don't feel like you have anything to give either. Those are the places where I'm living like my works is what makes me right with God. My works is what makes this sermon effective. No, it is not. It is the power of the word of God through the spirit of God in you. And that's what's being preached in this passage. That is what is coming loud and clear from this passage. So I I totally identify with Zechariah here. I, I totally get how many times in my life where I've just been about doing the job of being a Christian and not actually living with the power and expectation that comes with living and walking with the Spirit of God. Do you understand the distinction between those two things. I'm living, I'm being a good dad, I'm being a good husband, I'm being a good neighbor, I'm being a good pastor so that my life will then follow this pattern of what I want. But in that, I'm not really expecting that God is actually going to show up. I'm not actually really expecting that something in my life that I see as immovable or unchangeable might actually change. Or I'm definitely not living with the expectation that the Lord will comfort me in my need. And so when I, life, when I do life like that, then all my insides get noisy. All my insides start to churn. I get the butterflies in my stomach and the feeling of like I'm not doing good enough. There should be more that I need to do. I can't keep up. Why is life so hard? Every day is still the same thing, sun up to sundown. I feel stuck. I feel bored. I feel tired. Is this even worth doing? Is following Jesus worth it? And that internal noise can very quickly turn into external noise. And then we can start to complain. And we can start to say, well, how come they have it so good and I don't? Because I know my life and I know their life. I'm living way better than them. Why are they getting better things than me? And we begin to ask other people to affirm all of our pain, to affirm, yes, your life really is that hard. Yes, you you really are that bad off. Yes, where is God? But Ecclesiastes 10 says, a fool multiplies words. And the angel doesn't allow Zechariah to go there. He, he knows he's reading his mail already because for whatever reason, Mary next week has almost the exact same response. But for some reason, she gets commended and he gets mute for 10 months. You'll have to ask Jesus about that one one day. But there's something about, like, Jesus is reading Zechariah's mail. He knows there's something going on in your heart right now. Mary's heart is soft. Your heart is not. There is something that you need right now from me. There is something you need from the Lord. And what you need from the Lord, you can't speak into existence. What you need from the Lord, you can only receive. 
The story of the coming of Jesus is a story of one that can only be received. It is a story of salvation by nothing that we have done, but only by grace. And only by grace do we receive this life that he's given us. So a fool multiplies his words, but Ecclesiastes 10 goes on to say, but a prudent man shuts his mouth. Now, if you're like me, then you may have had to had your mouth shut instead of choosing that for yourself. Uh, I've had those times in my life where no matter what I tried to say or do, God had constrained me. Is God constraining you anywhere right now? And what might he, what gift might he be giving you in that constraining? Those places where your heart feels most unrestful. What might he do as you quiet your mouth and instead allow those worries to come to him instead of be quieted with the noise of this world? Because faith is silent. Faith is receptive. It's curious. It's slow. Because what Zechariah does not have the gift of, and so he is shown (laughs) by having this taken away, is the ability to quiet himself. There was a retreat that my first uh, youth ministry job in Atlanta, we did a retreat, and I can't even believe that anybody showed up for it, but it was called the Solitude Retreat. So we took 100 high schoolers, and we took them to a retreat center in the woods. And for two days, there was a sermon and a worship service in the morning and a sermon and a worship service in the evening. And then from 10 o'clock a.m. to 12 o'clock p.m., there was a two-hour initiated silence. You took your Bible, you took a journal, we maybe gave a prompt of a scripture to read, be still and know that I am God, something of that nature, and then we sent all of these hundred high schoolers out to find a tree to sit under somewhere. And beforehand, as you can imagine, all of the chatter of those high schoolers was like, this is going to be really boring. What are we going to do for two hours? How many birds am I going to have to count? Like, And all of the questions, and there was this sort of air of nervous energy that was around the room because when is the last time that any of us were totally silent for two hours? Let alone high schoolers. And after lunch, we would come back in and we would debrief. And what was astounding every time was the amount of tears the amount of, I had never seen this in scripture before, the amount of, I actually prayed like I haven't in a long time or maybe ever, the amount of, I heard God say to me, I love you, and he quieted me, and he cared for me, and scripture came alive to me, and conversations about backstories and hurt and confessions of sin and community building and all of these things happen because we stopped for two hours and just let the Lord speak. Uh, 
I tried this the other day. I like to wash dishes. It's cathartic to me. They're very dirty, and then they're very clean. Anybody else? No. Oh, come on! <laughs> well, I was wondering why I wasn't getting more of a response. Okay, I guess that's just me being weird. Uh, and... So as I'm doing dishes, a lot of times I'll put like, you know, if it's Monday night, I'll put a football game on or whatever, put a podcast on, put some music on. And I was doing dishes the other night and thought, okay, I'm talking about silence this Sunday. I should probably, it's been a little while, I should put myself back in that place. And what I've found is that when I shut off the Bluetooth speaker, all of the things that were actually going on inside of me began to bubble out. It was like the cork on the champagne got popped and there was nothing to keep it in. And instead, all of the fears, all of the busyness, all of the things I can't control, all of the things about myself, all of the things about other people, all of the things about my job, all of the things that I'm fearful or worried or doubtful about just started to bubble out. And I had nothing to like, shh, shh. Those 400 years of silence before Zechariah were a gift to the people of God. And the the 2,000 years of Jesus not coming back yet. And to maybe narrow that a little bit more, all of the places in your life where he is not doing the work that you wished he would do are gifts. These are places where faith is built. Those 400 years of will the Messiah ever come? Will we ever be free from Rome? Will we ever be free from our sins? Is God actually there or has he forgotten about us? Or was that whole thing just a daydream from people writing a long time ago? But if God were to wait on us to get it right before he came into our world, he would still be waiting. The beauty of the story of Zechariah is that God invades Zechariah's life without his permission. (laughs) Jesus is at work in our lives in many ways without our permission. He's meddling in stuff. He's stopping things that you think you want and actually would not be good for you. He's giving you afflictions and sufferings in ways that are actually growing your faith in which if you had any choice in the matter, you would say, nuh-uh. But the best thing about this passage is that God didn't wait for Zechariah to get it right. He made him right by closing his mouth and building his faith and giving him this thing that he had longed for. He says, I came to answer your prayers, Gabriel says, to which Zechariah might have been thinking, that was like 30 years ago I prayed for that. I don't even want that anymore. But verse 17 says, this isn't just any baby. That this baby is one who will be a new kind of prophet, who will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And how will he prepare him? What's his name? John. What does John mean? God is gracious. He is preparing his people to come to him by grace. He is preparing a people not to be able in their own works to come to God, but he is preparing a people 
to soften and quiet themselves and say, I am needy. I am an empty cup. Will you fill me? And so we can begin in that place to see the real reason why Jesus had to do what he did. Why Jesus had to cannonball into our world. Why he had to live in our skin for 33 years. Because there is no one righteous. No, not one. Not one of us. Not even as much righteousness as Zechariah had built up. Not even that guy could get in. Jesus alone is the perfect one. Jesus alone is the one who has used his words perfectly at all times. Jesus alone is the one who has had a busy life but a quiet heart, fully trusting in his Father and his providence, who suffered mightily and learned obedience through his suffering, Hebrews says. Whereas most of the time, I am pushing off suffering as quickly as I can get it off of me. Jesus came to die for a fickle and a faithless people by being the faithful one for us. And then as he dies and rises and ascends, he then sends one who can interact with us in the same way that this angel interacts with Zechariah. The Holy Spirit now is changing you. The Holy Spirit now is bringing the word of God to life in your heart. He is slowly, little by little, making you look more like Jesus. That's a miracle. And this period of waiting, this period of, will Jesus just come back? Will will my life just get right? Can I just get everything together? No. Every time you get your life close enough to together, Jesus knocks something else over. It's like when you clean your kid's playroom and then 30 seconds later after they enter the playroom, it's all a mess again. Or it's like when you do a bunch of dishes and then after dinner you go in the kitchen again and there they are again. All of those little places of suffering or big places of suffering in our lives right now are places where we are being invited to be still and know that he is God and we are not. And that his power And his grace will be the one that will be able to buoy us in our faith walk while we can't see him and while we can't see the fruition of all these things that he's doing, but can also trust, uh, allow us to trust and wait in him. And so Elizabeth ends where I want us to end today. Verse 25, Elizabeth says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, that is my shame, to take away my reproach among people. And it says she hid for five months. And we don't know exactly the reason why she hid for five months, but what this says is those were five sweet months. What we know is that Zechariah couldn't speak until John, 10 months later, after his birth. From conception to birth, he was completely quiet. What would those 10 months have been like if you couldn't talk? But all of those places were building their faith, building their belief that life is actually by grace. Because when life is by grace, I don't have to parent perfect in order to get perfect kids. I actually get to love these kids towards Jesus, even with all my failures. Actually, my failures are the very thing where I can point to those things and say, see, dad needs Jesus too. 
where I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church expectant that the Lord is actually going to meet me here. That I don't have to succeed in order for my life to go well. In fact, God works way better in failure than he does in success. That's what life by grace is. That's what we're being invited to in the story of Advent. And all those noisy places can begin to be quelled. And we can sit with open hands and trusting in silence for the Lord to be the Lord and for us to not have to be. That's the story of Advent. That's the story of Zechariah. And what's amazing is that those 400 years of silence Israel had undergone a massive amount of trauma in those 400 years. The the Persians took them over first. This is post-Malachi, post the end of the Old Testament. The Persians take them over from the time of Malachi to 331 B.C. In 331 B.C., the Greeks come and they take over. Uh, That's like Alexander the Great time frame. Then in 164, this is the story of Hanukkah, when the Jews take back over Jerusalem. Uh, and then Jerusalem and the, Jews, the Jewish people get so corrupt that Jewish leaders ask Rome to come in and bring order to their chaos in 63 B.C. Those 400 years were a mess. How's your life going? But guess what God was doing in those places? Under Persia, he gave the resources for the temple to be rebuilt. Under Greece, the Greek language was introduced which readied the scriptures to be written in a common language that the majority of the world could read and understand, or at least could understand and hear. Under Rome, the roads were built, the infrastructure was built for the gospel to reach the world. In every one of those spaces, when it felt like trauma after trauma, suffering after suffering, God was making a way to make the gospel mean something, to bring the gospel to those people of old and to us today. The reason that we have this in our hands is because all of this happened. And so if he's working on macro levels like that, then he is also working on the micro levels of all the places that feel like Persia and Greece and Rome. This wreckage in your life, whatever that may be, he is very much working in those places. So here's what I'd like to do. As we come to the table, uh, I'd like us to pause for a minute and to be still and to bring whatever that might be for you today that you're like, Man, I am so worried. Man, I just don't see a way around this. Man, this place of suffering is just eating my lunch right now. I have no faith in regards to this. My heart is noisy because of this. Whatever that is for you, let's take a minute and just pause. You can close your eyes. You can open your hands. Whatever posture helps you to receive the love of Jesus in this moment. And then we're going to come to the table and receive it there as well. So let's pause for one minute.
Lord, calm our anxious thoughts. Search our hearts and find any unclean way among us and lead us to the life everlasting. Amen. So hopefully, this now provides a moment that we can taste and see that the Lord is good in a very particular way. Uh, because if, if you have a fledgling faith, like Zechariah, then your faith needs tangibility. I need to see something so that I can believe it, and Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that we need something that we can see, feel, touch, and taste to believe he actually is that good. He actually did live, die, and rise for me. And that's what communion is. It is him communing with us in this way, him coming to his people in this way. And so for all who have faith in Jesus, for all this morning who are coming with empty hands, coming with anxious hearts, coming with a need that nothing in this world can fulfill, coming with places of suffering that you just can't work your way through, places of sin that you can't just figure out on your own, bring those to the foot of Jesus. And be still. Everything about Christianity, everything about following Jesus is receptivity. Everything that we do is only in response to what he has done. And so what you have an opportunity to do here is to kneel and receive and taste and see that he is good. And so for all who are walking uh, with Jesus today, this table is yours. Uh, For all who are living with a posture of search me, God, find anything unclean in me, uh, who have an open-handed posture of reconciliation, not with perfect relationships, uh, but with an open posture and a reconciled heart with him, uh, and that moving its mercy out into your relationships with other people, please come. But if that's not you today, then this is a perfect opportunity to stop and consider, what do I really believe? What am I staking my life on? Am I living my life with an open hand or am I clenching my fist trying to do it on my own? Let this table pass you by today, but let this mercy open your hands to him maybe for the first time. So on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So the way you'll come up is uh, you can come by the center aisle or these two side aisles. You come up to the, uh, the kneelers. If you would like someone to pray for you, you can cross your arms up here. Uh, if you would like a space to be prayed over in a little more depth, we've got Christopher back in the prayer corner and somebody else. Abby, Christopher and Abby, uh, back in the prayer corner, and they would love to also um, come alongside you and pray for any weights that you might be carrying and would like somebody else to carry with you. Uh, So let's pray, and then we'll come ahead. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your life, for your death, uh, for your reconciliation for us. Though we were sinners, uh, yet you loved us still. So uh, we pray that in this moment you would meet us that in the stillness with which we humble ourselves and kneel before you, would you meet your people? Uh, And would our hearts come alive to you, Holy Spirit, in new ways even as we take. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
the word that met Zechariah is the same word that meets us. Paul finishes his letter to the Corinthian church, which was a mess. Uh, and he begins with the word grace. And so would we receive that same word as it propels us with restful hearts back out into whatever he has for us this week, knowing he is present and he is active in whatever those places are. With the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you both now and forever. Let's sing to him.